on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Do support us. Give us a call and make a pledge. 818-985-5735. 818-985-KPFK. Or donate online at kpfk.org. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. The time now is 6 p.m. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. And welcome to your Rebel Alliance News for Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in to all that news you can't hear on corporate mainstream media. And just in case you want to stream us, you can find us at rebelalliancenews.com. Go check it out. In today's headlines, California Senate race heats up. Well, not really. Tucker Carlson Putin interview indoctrinates millions. Uber goes on strike. A pod of stranded orcas. Climate change alarmists contradict themselves. Your non-NATO news. All this and much, much more. Coming right up. Good evening. I'm Jack Kennedy. Four deadly overnight shootings happening a few miles apart appear to be related, according to an internal law enforcement bulletin obtained and verified by KCAL News. The four shootings happened in Bell, Florence, Firestone, and Huntington Park. While the L.A. County Sheriff's Department recovered a red SUV believed to be connected to the killings, they've not located a suspect. Detectives have not released a motive for the killings. The first shooting was reported to the Bell Police Department about 10.30 p.m. According to LASD, officers found the unconscious victim in the 6500 block of Bear Avenue near a primary school. Paramedics pronounced the victim dead shortly after arriving at the scene. The second shooting to be reported to deputies off East Florence Avenue at about 12.08 a.m., about three miles away from the Bell crime scene. Deputies said they found the victim and he was later declared dead by paramedics. Nearly 10 minutes later and about four miles away, witnesses reported another fatal shooting outside Ellen Oaken Learning Center. Deputies discovered two teens with gunshot wounds. Paramedics treated both the boys on the street. One of them, 14-year-old Javier Pedras Jr., died at the scene. The second teen was rushed to the local hospital and is in stable condition. Investigators were alerted to the final shooting a little after 2.30 a.m. when an officer from the Huntington Park Police Department discovered a man lying in the 6300 block of Santa Fe Avenue, about three miles away from the Ella Oaken Learning Center. He was declared dead shortly after. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Three Democrats and one Republican candidate took to the stage in San Francisco Monday night for another California Senate race debate. On the list of topics discussed was the mix of both statewide problems as well as national issues. The Bay Area also getting mentioned Monday evening, specifically Oakland and the issues the city has faced when it comes to crime and public safety. The sole Republican on the stage, former baseball player Steve Garvey, saying he wants to address the homelessness crisis. Garvey stating that he thinks the state has wasted money on it for years. Quote, $30 billion have been thrown at the homeless. It's been wasted. When I go back to Washington as your next duly elected senator, the first thing I will do is make sure that there's an audit to find out where the money went. Garvey said. Orange County Representative Katie Porter touted her progressive record during her time in Congress. Porter urging voters to choose her based off the issues. I'm the candidate they can count on to shake up the Senate, to push to change things in Washington until California gets what it needs, Porter said. Californians will head to the polls for the primary on March 5th, an opportunity to fill a wide-open Senate seat, something that hasn't happened in California in decades since political science professor Melissa Michelson. While the general election might not be until November, Michelson says that given California's system, sometimes the primary is actually the more important race. Four more people have been arrested outside of the viral abandoned high-rise building in downtown Los Angeles over the weekend. The building made headlines in February after nearly every floor was covered in graffiti. 
Police officers have been stationed around the abandoned high-rise to keep track of anyone who goes in or out of the building. Authorities said they have arrested people between the ages of 29 and 44. In the last 24 hours, there have been multiple arrests of people exiting the private property of Oceana Plaza, said the Post on X from the Los Angeles Police Department. Multiple spray paint cans and an illegal firearm have been recovered during these arrests. The building, located at 12th Street and South Flower Street, has drawn the attention of many Angelinos in recent weeks, some of who view the dozens of stories of graffiti as a work of art and others who see it as an eyesore, all visible from the nearby 10 freeway. LAPD Chief Michael Moore responded to the post on his personal account, noting that, quote, Our people remain at the site as the city mobilizes resources to remove the graffiti and fortify the location, unquote. Remains unclear exactly how many people were arrested over the weekend. Just last week, four people were arrested for allegedly trespassing at the site. Prior week, two people were arrested on suspicion of trespass as well. Los Angeles city leaders are taking steps to purse legal action against the building's developer, who is based in China. Surprise, surprise. Work on the group of towers came to a sudden halt in 2019 after the developer reportedly encountered financial troubles. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Thousands of U.S. and U.K. drivers for so-called gig economy platforms like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and others plan to stage a mass work stoppage on Valentine's Day tomorrow as part of the widespread dispute over working conditions, advocacy groups have said. Justice for the App Workers, a coalition that claims to represent more than 130,000 drivers and delivery workers across the U.S., said last week that its members receive unfair pay and are demanding change from, quote, all the app companies profiting off our hard work, unquote. The group added that its members will suspend operations for two hours in at least 10 major cities across the U.S., including Chicago, Miami, and Philadelphia on Valentine's Day, one of the busiest days of the year for the industry. It added that its workers will refuse all requests to and from airports throughout the entire day. The proposed demonstrations come a week after the drive-sharing app Lyft said it would guarantee a weekly income for its drivers, saying in a statement that it was, quote, constantly working to improve the driving experience, unquote. Uber, meanwhile, said last week that its drivers made an average of $33 per utilized hour of work in the final quarter of last year. In 2023, the gross monthly income of Uber drivers dropped by about 17%, according to analysis provided by the rideshare assistant app Gridwise. The UK Supreme Court ruled in November that delivery drivers are designated as self-employed contractors rather than workers or employees, meaning that they are not subject to minimum wage rules. The judgment followed a long-running campaign by the Independent Workers Union of Great Britain in which it sought to organize and collectively bargain on their behalf. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Paramount Global, which owns CBS, Paramount Pictures, Pluto TV, Comedy Central, BET, and numerous other media properties, set to begin laying off around 800 employees, or 3% of its workforce, today, according to an internal memo from CEO Bob Backish that was first obtained by Deadline. Workers losing their jobs will be notified today. Quote, these adjustments will help enable us to build on our momentum and execute our strategic vision for the year ahead. And I firmly believe we have much to be excited about, unquote. Backus reportedly wrote in the note. For the Super Bowl on Sunday, CBS scored 123.4 million viewers across television and streaming platforms, a significant increase from last year's tally of 115 million. CBS charged advertisers $7 million per commercial. Among the takers was China's online marketplace, Timu which purchased airtime for three commercials that ran multiple times during Sunday's big game. Last year, Paramount slashed 25% of its employees across multiple media properties. As part of the reductions, it shut down MTV News. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin is at 200 million views on X. Turns out, he's just saying what the independent media has been saying the whole time. Russell Brand takes a look. Now, obviously, this fantastic conversation has taken place. We're not naive, or maybe we are naive, but not so naive as not to imagine that Vladimir Putin has an agenda and knows how to communicate. What a fascinating conversation it was. The right of any nation to have their own history, the complexity of the concept of a nation. For example, look at the relationship between the United Kingdom and Ireland and the times in history where people in the 
United Kingdom would have said, but Ireland is part of our country. Or the relationship between the United States and Mexico, which once included Los Angeles and Texas. Or indeed the relationship between the United States and the people that lived there before the arrival of European settlers, many of whom were from my country. Vladimir Putin regards this as a regional dispute, essentially a civil war. And he regards the support by America of Ukraine as comparable to if Texas seceded from the United States. Imagine if Russia started to arm Texas. But what is the obligation of the wider world? Is it to continue to pump money into this conflict, a conflict that surely cannot be won without major loss of life and maybe even nuclear war? Or is it paramount that at this point we consider peace? The threat that the legacy media face from this interview even taking place is that you and me, people that they like to control the information we gain access to, are able to look at Vladimir Putin ourselves and go, hmm, I don't think this guy does want to invade NATO countries. Let's have a look at some key moments from that conversation and decide for ourselves what we believe. What a novel concept. Tell us why you believe the United States might strike Russia out of the blue. I think what a lot of people loved is that when Vladimir Putin started to answer the first question, it was a half-hour response that explained the history of that region. Are we having a talk show or a serious conversation? <laughs> Here's the quote. Thank you. It's a formidable series. Because your basic education is in history as far as I understand. Yes. So if you don't mind, I will take only 30 seconds or one minute to give you a short reference to history for giving you a little historical background. Please. There was a man called Genghis Khan. Oh, there was a massive explosion. The universe began to expand. But in a way, that shows you the complexity of history. That's why there are so many available perspectives, because history is complicated. Now let's get into the nitty-gritty of Tucker Carlson's tie and why he's such a Putin apologist. We're willing to negotiate. It is the Western side, and Ukraine is obviously a satellite state of the US. It is evident. I do not want you to take it as if I'm looking for a strong word or an insult. But we both understand what is happening. The financial support, 72 billion US dollars was provided. Germany ranks second, then other European countries come. Dozens of billions of US dollars are going to Ukraine. There's a huge influx of weapons. In this case, you should tell the current Ukrainian leadership to stop and come to negotiating table, rescind this absurd decree. We did not refuse. I think so straight away, just seeing Vladimir Putin as a human being, and hearing that there is a Russian perspective is interesting. You immediately get the impression that Russia feels beleaguered and beset by surrounding superpower nations like Germany and the United States who are funding a neighbor's war against them, a war that they regard as a civil war. Again, it's not like we all want to get all giddy as if Vladimir Putin is Harry Styles or the Beatles. This is a political leader. This is a political leader with imperialist objectives of his own, a man that would doubtless have people killed if he disagreed with them. All those things are true. The very fact that the legacy media have been so quick to attack Tucker Carlson in Russia, you don't interview the president, the president interviews you, Carlson could barely get a word in. I mean, I think if you get an interview of Vladimir Putin, it'll be somewhat impolite and perhaps not sensible to go, no, shut up, excuse me. Sure, but you already <laughs> said it. I didn't think you meant it as an insult because you already said correctly, it's been reported that Ukraine was prevented from negotiating a peace settlement by the former British prime minister acting on behalf of the Biden administration. So of course they're a satellite. Big countries control small countries. That's not new. And that's why I asked about dealing directly with the Biden administration, which is making these decisions, not President Zelensky of Ukraine. That's a good dig for those of us that are British. We knew that went down, right? Notice how often what Vladimir Putin is saying chimes with what you've heard in independent media. Notice that the 2014 coup comes up, the regional disputes in 2008, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the tacit agreement between Gorbachev and Reagan not to impede on former Soviet territories. All these things are coming up because they're bloody true. All of the things that you've heard from independent media, like, hang on a minute, haven't we provoked them to some degree? And whether or not their invasion is criminal and whether or not Ukrainian people are dying, which is appalling and terrible, we have to think, what is the role of America? Because America and Western countries more generally, as their affiliates, could be playing the role of bringing about peace by saying, look, we're going to suspend arms now, which would have the added benefit of meaning that $60 billion would be available for US infrastructure for you to democratically determine how it's spent, for example, on your border, if that's what you vote for, and then peace would be forced. Let us go back to 
1991, when we were promised that NATO would not expand, to 2008, when the doors to NATO opened to the declaration of state sovereignty of Ukraine, declaring Ukraine a neutral state. Let us go back to the fact that NATO and U.S. military bases started to appear on the territory of Ukraine, creating threats to us. Let us go back to coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014. In a way, the interview is like the greatest hits of things you've heard on independent media, isn't it? NATO expansionism, ignoring an agreement between Gorbachev and Reagan, 2014 coup, all things you would have heard if you've listened to Jeffrey Sachs. And most of all, what I feel is emerging from this is we cannot trust the legacy media, we cannot trust the people that want to perpetuate this war. Perhaps you might conclude also you cannot trust Vladimir Putin, but one thing that seems really clear to me, and perhaps this is the key point, I don't get the sense that were the West to push for a peace deal instead of a perpetuation of war, in a couple of months we'll be hearing like, oh, guess what? Russia's invaded Sweden. Oh, guess what? Russia have turned up in Sri Lanka. I was in the Seychelles the other day. You know what happened? It's right, Russia. Russia with a bunch of bloody Houthis. Never heard of them until a couple of years ago, but increasingly from the pandemic period onward in particular, we're invited to believe that we're somehow not capable of making decisions for ourselves. We're regarded as idiots or children. And when an outlier like Tucker Carlson, facilitated by Elon Musk, it grants us the opportunity to watch for ourselves a conversation like this, they're terrified because they're terrified that you might become disobedient, that you might not regard this as a simple matter of Ukraine, our goodies, Putin is a baddie, we have to keep funding this, Russia will be invading Ghana next or they'll be marching on Paris. They want you to have that perspective. What we're at is a tipping point in public trust in significant institutions. Can you imagine a scenario where you sent Russian troops to Poland? Only in one case, if Poland attacks Russia. Why? Because we have no interest in Poland, Latvia or anywhere else. Why would we do that? We simply don't have any interest. That's a key moment. There you have to decide, is Putin a Hitler-like loony who has expansionist dreams. What I'm saying is, is when you see him say, we've got no interest in invading Latvia, do you think that he's lying? Or do you think that there's a grind going on when it comes to perpetuating this war? I just remember the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and how these things always play out. And what you find out then, oh, there were no weapons of mass destruction. Afghanistan was a waste of time and $2 trillion and American service personnel lives. We have a quite a significant wealth of experience on which to evaluate the intentions of our own nations. And for us to keep believing out of some sort of warped patriotism, terror and infantilism in the agenda that is advanced by our own governments, the agenda for any sensible person should be peace. And the only way to get peace is through diplomacy. Well, the argument, I know you know this, is that, well, he invaded Ukraine. He has territorial aims across the continent. And you're saying unequivocally you don't. It is absolutely out of the question. You just don't have to be any kind of analyst. It goes against common sense to get involved in some kind of a global war. Tell that to Joe Biden. He loves them. He's doing one against the RAN, one against the Houthis, one against Russia, looking for one against China. But Putin's the mad warmonger. And a global war will bring all humanity to the brink of destruction. That's not one of those things that we intuitively understand. Hold on a minute, but won't a global war kill all of us? That's why we feel dislocated from our leaders and from our media, because they're not saying things like, a global war is going to kill us all. So even though this is terrible for Ukrainian people, let's end this right now. Could have ended a year and a half ago if Boris Johnson, another globalist, hadn't trotted out there to extend it for a couple of years just because they've named a cake after him in Kiev. I remember that detail. There are certainly means of deterrence. They have been scaring everyone with us all along. What? Our media scaring us to make us compliant? They would... Uh, oh. Tomorrow Russia will use tactical nuclear weapons. Tomorrow Russia will use that. No, the day after tomorrow. So what? In order to extort additional money from US taxpayers and European taxpayers. Uh-oh, getting pretty near the bullseye. He's above the target now. Not literally, because he said he won't use nuclear weapons. Few. The goal is to weaken Russia as much as possible. What? That's one of the geopolitical arguments that you'll be well familiar with if you watch independent media. Weaken Russia, weaken China, Iran have got oil, ag them out. We know all of this stuff because we watch independent media instead of the BBC, CNN, New York Times, all them lies that want you dumb and compliant. One of uh, our senior United States senators from the state of New York, Chuck Schumer, said yesterday, I believe, that we have to continue to fund the Ukrainian effort or U.S. soldiers, citizens could wind up fighting there. How do you assess that? 
This is a provocation, and a cheap provocation at that. I do not understand why American soldiers should fight in Ukraine. There are mercenaries from the United States there. The bigger number of mercenaries comes from Poland, with mercenaries from the United States in second place, and mercenaries from Georgia in third place. Well, if somebody has the desire to send regular troops, that would certainly bring humanity to the brink of very serious global conflict. This is obvious. Do the United States need this? What for? America used to be like that, by the way. It was really hard to get America to participate in the world wars that Britain were in in the last century. Now there's this new sort of agenda, I suppose, because America have replaced Britain as an expansionist colonial power, but just using a corporate globalist aesthetic rather than the old school monarchistic one that we used. Thousands of miles away from your national territory. Don't you have anything better to do? Yeah, actually, I'd like to play swing ball. You have issues on the border, issues with migration, issues with the national debt, more than 33 trillion dollars. You have nothing better to do, so you should fight in Ukraine? If this is one of his lookalikes, he's bloody good. Wouldn't it be better to negotiate with Russia? Make an agreement, already understanding the situation that is developing today? This is it. This is what, in a sense, the fissure that's opened is that our interests are more in alignment with Russia's agenda than our own governments. That's the problem. That's what this exposes. We have nothing in common with the institutions that lead us. You need to take back control and power over your own lives. It's been exposed by this. Not that I believe Vladimir Putin, but the assessment of the global situation is pretty accurate. Do you trust anyone to advocate for you? Do you want this to carry on? Wouldn't you rather just have a little more democracy in your own community and tolerate people that are culturally different in your own nation as long as they leave you alone? Isn't it clear that a different vision is required and that no one's offering it to you because we're living in their vision right now. And guess what time it is? It's that time of the evening when you reach into your pocket and you make a big donation here to KPFK. That's right. You're going to call 818-985-5735 or you're going to go to kpfk.org and you're going to pull out that American Express platinum card, unlimited uh, unlimited credit on that thing, and put like, I don't know, like 800 bucks on it. Donate 800 bucks to KPFK. That's right. Keep us on the air. We know a lot of you listeners, you have big pockets. You're always doing fancy things on the weekend like going to get a massage, going to... We spa, but instead of doing that, donate here. Help keep KPFK on the air. That's right. Call 818-985-5735 or go to kpfk.org. You can donate online. It's easy. And you will feel good after you do it. You will. I promise you. I always do. I donate. I'm a volunteer here. I still donate. I'm a liar. I haven't donated yet, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it within the next week. I'm going to call and donate, and you should too. 818-985-5735, kpfk.org. Do it right now. Give us some money, and we will keep this news flowing into your ear holes. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Justin Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act was declared an unconstitutional abuse of power in Canada. Kim Iverson and Eva Chipbook take a look. So the Emergencies Act, though, um, that was taken to court the act itself was taken to court. And recently, just a couple of weeks ago, a judge ruled that it was, I guess you don't call it unconstitutional there. What would you... Unconstitutional, uh, illegal, I say, because I think that's the most powerful. Um, Illegally enacted, of course, not like a criminal illegality that they're getting handcuffed. But it was found to be an abuse of powers unconstitutional. So yes, uh, those would be correct words. So what did the how did that come about? What did the what was the evidence presented that the judge just said, yeah, this is this was insane. You can't this was illegal. So just to go back, um, when I cross examined the prime minister, it was under the Public Order Emergencies Commission. And it was, uh, like I said, an investigatory power, a body that had to look at all the details. And we sat through six weeks of evidence of what had happened and government officials and police said it, uh, said uh, their evidence. And just so you know, and your viewers know in that case with, he was, he's normally a judge, but he had the role of a commissioner. He uh, issued a 2000 page report and found that the government of Canada and Justin Trudeau was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act. 
in that case, less than a year later, we have a federal court judge, because as you said, um, some people in Canada brought an application to the federal court and mm -hmm. said that uh, this emergency power was overbroad. It was not justified. It's not reasonable. And in the end, a federal court judge, and this has legal bearing, the Public Order Emergency Commission had no legal bearing. It was just an investigative process. Um, but in this case, it it was very, it's strong messaging. And you asked about the evidence. There was no good evidence to show that the federal government should have invoked this. Yeah. And the judge goes through that. He actually, in his decision, he says... I actually thought I was going to rule in favor of the federal government, but on the evidence of nothing, basically, <laughs> I have to go and uh, side with this is not justified. It, it, and that's what I couldn't believe when we got the decision from the commissioner, um, Rouleau, in that case, because all of the police authorities said there was no reason. We didn't ask for it. Excuse me. They said we didn't ask for it. One um, intelligence officer said that crime actually went down in Ottawa. So doesn't really suggest <laughs> right. that there's big, you know, crazy activity going on. Right. Uh, and, and CSIS, which is our CIA, CSIS said, do not invoke the Emergencies Act because it will cause more extreme views. The reason they're here is that they're protesting the government and they don't support this. Don't invoke the Emergencies Act. And they did. So there was no evidence to do it. And this was an excellent decision that finally put a little bit of perspective into what's been going on here. What kind of news did that make when the judge made that decision? Did that make mainstream news at all in Canada that Justin Trudeau was wrong in, in invoking this act? It did. Uh, I oh, think there was, okay. I think there was no way they could avoid it. They've avoided a lot of other things, um, but they couldn't avoid this one. And um, Justin Trudeau's deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland came out immediately saying we're going to appeal it. And of course, the mainstream media took that to think, well, this isn't over yet, which I am willing to bet they will not be uh, appealing it because it's I don't I don't see how they're going to win. And I think that on appeal that it'll just reinforce the first decision. So mainstream media did say it. But one thing, you know, just going back to what we were talking about, too, is where Canadians are at with what's going on. Even with this decision saying it was unjustified, there was no evidence to do it, there's still people that I've seen in Canada saying they were overthrowing the government. They shouldn't have done what they did. These are bad people that came to Ottawa. And I'm like, what more can you have? What more can you want? And if we had a prime minister with any integrity, he would have just, he would have recognized, you know, my fault here after the slew of other faults he's had and mistakes yeah. he's made, he would say, I really screwed up here and uh, you'll see my resignation. And that that would be the appropriate thing to do, but we haven't yeah. seen that. So now with the Emergencies Act, so basically the government says, so the, the judge says, this is, this is illegal. The government says, we're gonna, we're gonna challenge this. Of course, they always say that. When they said it was, so this is my big question on this, because here in the United States, a lot of our cases with the mandates and with, you know, all the various mandates and lockdowns have been challenged in courts. But the problem with the, um, the problem with the challenge is that when they go to court and we get wins on our side, the wins are like, oh, because this was arbitrary and capricious. So, you know, you didn't, you didn't apply it to everybody. So therefore this was, you, this was illegal. You know, it was all or nothing. Or they would say something like, well, it was the wrong government body. This particular government agency doesn't have the authority. It's not on the merit of this was just unconstitutional and you can't do that to the American people. None of our cases have been won on that. And that's what we want. We want to win on the government can't do this to you. But instead, our wins have been, well, that branch of government can't do this to you. Or if they're going to do it, they have to do it to everybody, not just the poor people. So the win that you guys had up there with the Emergencies Act, was that because of like a constitution, like a you cannot do this to people? Or is there a loophole 
in that judgment that would no, allow the government to do it later. Yeah, no, it, um, so the, there were two wins that I think are worth highlighting. And it's interesting that if the, did you say it was the wrong person that was sued, the wrong body in the United States? Or no, what the, they were, what they were claiming when the judgment would come down, the judge yeah. would say, okay, you win. You know, he'd hand the win to the anti-mandate crowd or the, the yeah. people that were fighting the government, but the win wasn't on constitutional grounds. The win was on, well, it was because this was the wrong, you know, it wasn't, it body. wasn't, yeah. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the, the win of like, the government can't do this to you because that's against the law. You know, that's against the constitution. It was just like, well, that it can't be OSHA. Okay. So yes, there, we haven't had too many of those wins either. And, but like, and I don't know if you, you talk to lawyers in those cases there, I think those are still very strong wins because there is one like that in Alberta that I'm working on right now too, where um, what happened is the public health officer is the only one supposed to be making decisions on these public health orders. And what we found out through a court case is she was allowing the elected officials to make those decisions. So in the end, those were illegally um, granted orders. So the wrong person was making the orders. But why I think that's so important is that our elected officials and can only do what is allowed in the legislation and follow it. So if they're going outside of the bounds of their body or their authority, that is an illegal action. It's administratively illegal and it is very strong. And it's a, a citizen should appreciate and understand that, that there's a problem there because then it suggests that they can do something else in another situation. So you really have to hold them account there. In the federal court case, that was a win on constitutional grounds. The court in that, the judge in that case said that um, there were some charter breaches that were happening. And in Canada, we have seen a lot of the same thing that you, I think you were saying earlier, is these applications were made to court. And what we saw a lot of before is the judges hands off saying, this is a public health issue, I'm a judge. This isn't about the law. So um, public health has authority here and we're going to defer uh. the authority to the public health. So we've had a lot of that because it was that balance of uh, individual rights over the public good. And the, the judge was like, I'm not getting involved in that mess. And so we had a lot of losses on those grounds. Yes. Wow. Yeah, but that's really I think there's hope. So yeah. I'm, well, yeah. I'm very optimistic, which <laughs> otherwise I wouldn't be doing this, I think. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under Paradoxes of the climate change movement are getting harder and harder to ignore Jimmy Dore discusses I, I was just telling you about how now I question everything including climate change And what I tell people is that you, you can believe that uh, carbon-based climate change is real but I know for a fact that the everything that the establishment proposes to fight that is ridiculous, right? Right now, they're trying to shut down Dutch farms. That's what they're saying is the problem. That's okay. the problem. You know, the biggest emitter of carbon in the even if you believe that the biggest emitter of carbon in the world is the U.S. military. The next time Greta Thunberg pro protests outside a new military base is the next time I'll believe anything she has to say. Greta Thunberg is a psyop invented by a PR firm. That, that That's what she is. She'll never go. She went, She's pro-Ukraine war. The biggest emis emission of methane gas in the history of the world was the Nord Stream pipeline that was blown up, right? And who blew yep. that up? The United States, the CIA, and NATO blew that up. Yep. And that's so right. she's not protesting that. She's not protesting war. She's invited to come to the WEF and speak at Davos, there's no way if she was actually opposing them that they would be inviting her. So this idea that the problem is, oh, by the way, in California, Doctor, you can't have a gas-powered lawnmower or a gas-powered leaf blower. You know what they didn't outlaw? Private jet travel. One private jet travel emits as much carbon as my car does in my lifetime. They'll never ban. So once they once they ban private jet travel and they cut, they close down eight, or John Kerry or Barack Obama or Joe Biden say we have to shut down 800 military bases around the world that's when i'll start believing what they say about climate change and not until then do you think i i, I agree i have a slightly different measure though my, my sort of what i'm looking for is in california 
it was something like 10 years of gas-powered vehicles are is completely un, eliminating 10 years of gas-powered vehicles is completely undone by one of our forest fires. So if you were actually serious about carbon emission in California, you would be doing forestry management. Huh. That would be your numero uno job. And all these fires we have, they are not because of, they, they started because of electric companies, but the reason there's such a problem is that we stopped doing forestry management in this state. I grew up in Southern California, and when you looked at the San Gabriel Mountains behind us here, they used to be crisscrossed by these fire breaks. They were all over the place. They eliminated, eliminated even fire breaks because it was interfering with the migration of a mouse. And so now it's all one thing and they are not cleaning the floors they are not doing any logging because well i mean again that's upsetting some owls and so and then they get what they get so there's number one if carbon is the issue let's come up with an efficient way to carbon scrub elon musk his big solution uh, we just highlighted on this show a couple weeks ago was that a carbon tax isn't it interesting that a guy who wants to sell electric vehicles wants to put a tax on carbon so people driving gas-powered cars who are have to pay for everything but apparently he doesn't have by the way did you know that people do you ever think about it this way that that people who drive electric cars don't contribute to the road uh upkeep or construction because the gas tax is what funds that so if you're driving an electric car you're not contributing to the upkeep of the roads and uh again this is all again follow the money the scam of course he said uh put a carbon tax on don't put a tax on the batteries that he has to use slave labor to get what you're calling about you're talking about a, a word we don't use maybe enough, which is corruption. <laughs> things have been, it's either corrupt or at least adulterated. That's a kinder word. I've been using the word adulterated a lot because I, I see people that are adulterated don't realize it. Uh, and yeah, it, it's infected everything. Uh, and, and, it's, and it is about an ensconced elite that is highly adulterated. And is not letting go. Well, people don't. Well, so when people turn on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, or read the New York Times, or read the Washington Post, they literally think they're getting the news. Now, Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman wrote a book 25, maybe 30 years ago called Manufacturing Consent. Mm-hmm. And there, he proved that the media is not there to inform you, to give you the news. It's there to manufacture the consent of what the establishment billionaire class that owns them wants to happen in legislation. We also don't live in a democracy. The idea that January 6th overthrew our democracy or tried to, your democracy was stolen from you by corporations decades and decades ago. And it was proven by a Princeton study. We don't live in a democracy. We live in an oligarchy because the bottom 80% of wage earners, what they want reflected in legislation never gets reflected in legislation. And only the upper 10%, if 50% of the upper 10% want something, 50% of the time it gets made into legislation. So when you you see a session of Congress. Do you think they're doing the bidding of workers and students and the elderly and the sick? And in front, they're doing the bidding of the billionaire class that they serve. That's exactly what's had. That's what a session of Congress is, which is why we can send $100 billion to the most corrupt country in Europe at the blink of an eye. And we still won't take care of the homeless people in our own country, which we right. could do that tie, oh, five times over for what we sent to Ukraine. And by the way, Noam Chomsky, the second time that book came up today, and I'm going to say what I meant to say to the last person I was interviewing who brought his name up. The irony is that now Noam Chomsky is part of the elite too. Yes. He's actually part of it. So Noam Chomsky <laughs> was part of the people who are manufacturing yeah. consent for the COVID narrative, which was unbelievable. Yep. Well, he said that they should yep. separate the people who are unvaccinated. And when he was asked, how would those from society, they should be separated from society. And he yep. equated people who weren't vaccinated with people who want, who wouldn't obey traffic lights and wanted yep. to. And then he said they wanted to kill him. And they said that they should be separated from society. And when asked what they should do to get food, he said that that's their problem. So that's <laughs> the, the irony is that <sighs> that that's what he said. That's a direct quote. That's verbatim. And so that's that the guy who wrote the book called Manufacturing Consent, of course, it ends up manufacturing consent. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is that time of the year to donate here to KPFK. We need your help. We want to stay on the air, and we are all donation-based. Without your donations, we will not exist. So what you need to do is call right now, 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735, or you can go to kpfk.org and donate. Give us 100 bucks. 
Give us 200 bucks. Give us 500 bucks. Think about all that money you waste on Starbucks, non-fat Frappuccino mocha lattes. You could be redirecting that to this wonderful news program and keeping us on the air because we need your money to stay on the air. KPFK is, I think, maybe the first publicly funded radio station in the U.S. I think, maybe. Don't quote me on that. Allegedly. Uh, So it's obviously a historic station and you're listening to it and you must like it a little bit. And if you like it a little bit, donate a little bit. Give us a call. 818-985-5735. KPFK.org. You can donate online. Maybe that's easier. I know that's how I like to do it. No, I don't. I'm lying. I like calling. I like calling 818-985-5735 because I like to hear someone's voice. That way there's a witness to this altruistic thing I'm doing for all of humanity, giving money. If I do it online, it's good, but nobody gets to witness how awesome I am. So either way, we'll take it. 818-985-5735 or go to kpfk.org. Please, we really do, seriously, we really do need your donations uh, to keep to keep the station functioning. Give us a call right now. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. pod of orca whales were trapped in sea ice off the coast of Japan. Brett and Heather Weinstein discussed these amazing creatures. A pod of orcas. This pod of orcas was trapped in some sea ice off of northern Japan. Hokkaido, yeah. Um, And it was a a large pod, um, including several calves. And And this really got my attention because there's a... Uh, There are pods of orcas up here where we live and recruiting, you know, a year in which a calf, you know, is born and makes it to next year is a big deal around here. This is a, uh, a tough process. So anyway, the idea, I mean, the interbirth interval at a minimum, I think is two years and sometimes it's way longer than that. So a lot of the calves don't survive. Right. So here you have a pod of orcas in a small section that is ice free, bobbing up and down, clearly, Trying to breathe, and you can imagine with the calves there, they would have an even harder time getting to the surface than the adults. And anyway, the the story struck me as um, potentially very tragic because a number of things were true. One, there didn't seem to be any plausible plan for saving them. And while I can imagine that if there were an icebreaker shipped nearby, maybe it would be doable. There's a question about the depth of the water. Anyway, nobody seemed to have a idea of how to break the ice to free these animals and it looked like you know these are warm-blooded creatures who were going to exhaust themselves and die quickly Mm -hmm. Um, and the idea you know we get very focused if a a group of miners gets trapped in a mine and we know that they're going to suffocate and there's a race to save them and i understand why those stories obsess us but these animals um it was like that story you know, these are obviously incredibly intelligent creatures and also not common. I don't think these particular orcas are endangered, but... Um, the particular population that they're coming from. Yeah, but nonetheless, the, I, this is like an entire little lineage, right? Yeah. Right, That could be wiped out by having uh, gotten trapped by the ice in this way. Apparently, it's not the first time this has happened. But anyway, that struck me as a, you know, just an awful predicament. Um, uh, Good news, I think, is that as of today, there's no sign of them, which people take could be that they succumbed. But I think it seems unlikely that they would all have succumbed at once. So I would I would it, it would it would seem that if they were beginning to fail, that there would be fewer rather than none. Right. That, that none looks like escape. Like escape. Yeah. Although it could be that as, you know, you know, these are intelligent creatures, they, you know, have a social hierarchy. It could be that it, it became obvious that the only way out of this was to attempt to swim under the ice farther than... And none of them, and it didn't and work. none of them yeah. made it. That's a mm-hmm. possibility too. Yep. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know what their fate was and, and concerned that yeah, we may never know. We I don't, may, they weren't, these weren't tagged animals. I don't think. Anyway, I thought this was an interesting story for a number of reasons. One, there's the simple tragedy of it. Um, the fact that populations of orcas have been trapped in this space a couple of times begins to suggest an evolutionary question here. Mm. So, yeah. And so when you first 
told me about this. I was like, Japan, sea ice, that seems really far south. And apparently Hokkaido, which is the northernmost island um, where this was uh, happening, is the southernmost point where there is regular sea ice in the winter. So it's not unusual for there to be sea ice there. Although, you know, I don't know exactly what's going on with the circulation in the Pacific, that it's that, that does seem pretty far south for there yep, to be sea ice. It does. Yeah. Um, but to the extent that this is a regular hazard, you would imagine that there's an evolutionary response in the whales, mm -hmm. um, that they yep. would know that this was a hazard. But think about the following question. Let's say that none of these animals survived. Well, then you would have the production over the course of you know a decade of animals that would replace them in the ecosystem, right? There would be room in the ecosystem for that many more whales. All else being equal, we expect those animals to be replaced. Let's say that this has happened a thousand times. That would create a very weak selective force for trepidation amongst these whales about swimming into whatever conditions result in them getting trapped, mm -hmm. right? Because the new whales are naive. And so if there was a little predisposition to be worried about ice, you know, it might, you know, the whales that didn't swim into the ice would be more likely to produce that population. So there'd be a little bit of evolutionary pressure, but not much. Mm -hmm. Whereas, and this is actually a great example of why some of us critters, especially humans, but also almost especially uh, toothed whales um, and apes. Wolves and, and elephants and apes and parrots and corvids, right. crows. The so, long-lived social generational overlap, long childhood right. beasties. In which our genomes have offloaded so much of the work of evolutionary adaptation to a cultural layer, right? If these animals survived, or if any of them survived, then mm -hmm. what they carry with them is the understanding that that condition, which seemed reasonable enough to swim into, was actually deadly. Mm-hmm. Right. If all of them survived, they will have that knowledge because they will have gone through this terrifying experience and that terrifying experience. What is terror? Well, terror is the, you know, uh, uh, all right, activate these contingency programs and definitely remember this because it's really important and you don't want to end up in the situation again. You know, so the sort of negotiation with God that a human might go through, like if I get out of this, I'll never do it again. Right. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, you would imagine that these whales would carry this as the equivalent of a whale story, however it is encoded. Right. right. Even if what it is, is that the baby whales detect their parents become, you know, concerned as they swim near the ice and they don't know exactly what it's about, but they know that ice is more dangerous than it looks. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, two of those parameters I just gave in that list that you're well familiar with, long-lived and generational overlap, right? Cultural transmission of lessons learned from earlier in life when you are yourself old. That is, that is what all of those organisms that I mentioned uh, have the capacity to do. And this fits very neatly with what is called the grandmother hypothesis, right? So, you know, why, and I'm trying to remember, is it elephants or orcas, or is there some evidence in both that they are the only other organisms besides humans that go through menopause? They go through menopause. And so, Definitely like, what is, what is the point of post-reproductive life? Well, if you're long-lived and are social and have generational overlap and you have long childhoods and you have to learn how to be who you are as opposed to you're born and you're a giraffe and within moments you can run from leopards. If you have to learn how to be who you are, there's going to be a lot of value in continuing to impart those lessons learned and generating new lessons and, um, and figuring and engaging in the act of discovery and creativity long past when you might be producing kids. Right. And so the prediction of that hypothesis is that orcas or any creature that has a grandmother will outcompete, all else being equal, will outcompete a similar individual who doesn't because the benefit of the information that their grandmother carries uh, will provide a material advantage. Because no, no matter how good your parents are, or especially if they're not very good, uh, your grandmother and your grandfather, um, but you know, your, your grandmother, you know, is your grandmother, if she's your mother's mother, <clears throat> um, has been around for longer, has seen more. Yep. She's lived, She's she has survived more things than your parents have. And while what she has lived through and the lessons that she has taken to heart most may be farther from your current circumstances because more time has elapsed, uh, the fact is that she did it, she made it through, and she may remember that time that we were trapped in the ice off Hokkaido. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media. Thousands of Italians have taken to the streets of the capital in fresh pro-Palestine rallies. Press TV's Max Civili reports from Rome. 
On Saturday in the Italian capital of Rome, thousands of people braved lashing rain to hold a rally to show solidarity with Palestinians under attack in the Gaza Strip. The demonstration, which started in one of Rome's most touristic areas near the iconic Coliseum, was organized by a string of groups including the Palestinian Youth Movement and the Association of Palestinians residing in Italy. A number of Italian political movements also took part to the demonstration. What we have here is an Italian government which is utterly servile to the interest of Israel and the United States and together with the EU is complicit in the genocide and ethnic cleansing against the Palestinians. And this is why the conflict is spreading in West Asia. Last week, some injured Palestinian children reportedly arrived in Italy from Egypt to be hospitalized in the country. People at the rally are saying, why can't the Italian government also work to stop Israel's genocide of Palestinians in Gaza? Providing medical care to Palestinian wounded children is a highly hypocritical move by the Italian government in an attempt to rebuild its tarnished image. The Italian government is among the first to support Israel and continues its support even now that the International Court of Justice has recognized the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza. Bloomberg and other Western media outlets are warning that Germany is rapidly losing its position as an industrial superpower. Bloomberg claims that Berlin's manufacturing power has been in decline since 2017 and blamed it on a range of internal problems, but most of all on the loss of inexpensive Russian gas imports. Economist and publisher Eike Hammer believes Washington has played a significant role in this waning. It is uh, pretty clear that it was a political active um, sabotage which was led by the American bodies. The American bodies, in the sense of the NATO, to keep Germans down, Russians out and Americans in, was um, to, to sabotage the German industry to make the industry move over to America and to uh, prohibit that the German industry uh, joins with the Russian industry and forms a very strong relationship and a very strong economic power on the Eurasian continent. The following is that we are heading into this super severe recession and we don't know whether it will recover. We cannot afford this anymore to just listen to the American uh, superpowers from these politicians. We have to listen to what is good for uh, the German uh, industry. And for the German industry, it's good to have connections to a market value of energy, which is now in Russia. What we are facing now is, in my opinion, the most severe crisis or depression of the last 200 years. And this is spreading all over Europe afterwards. In Mariupol, a trove of documents and drugs has been found that implicate Western pharmaceutical companies in carrying out drug trials on Ukrainians for nearly a decade. Even newborns were said to be involved. This all allegedly took place following the U.S.-orchestrated Maidan coup in Kiev in 2014. RT's Steve Sweeney has more. Reconstruction work is taking place across Mariupol, with many of the buildings here destroyed during the fighting. More is being discovered about what happened in the city along the way. In December 2023, construction workers at this former psychiatric hospital made a shocking discovery. In this basement, they found a trove of documents and medication, indicating that mass clinical trials had taken place on the local population for many years. Many different drugs have been tested according to the files and the documents that we found. This map indicates the scale of the operation, with experiments taking place at at least eight centres across the city. Authorities believe that this is just the tip of the iceberg. We found documents that suggested thousands of people have been involved in experiments, with trials carried out for major pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Sanofi, GlaxoSmithKline and others. Bloods and other samples were collected and then sent to labs and clinics in Europe and the United States for testing, the results of which are unknown. Most shockingly, children and newborn babies are included among the list of those exposed to the testing, which one doctor says is not only unethical, but potentially unlawful. 
First of all, the illegal participation in such research and the illegal conduct of such research violate one of the most important laws, the law on the value of human life and the value of health. In addition, any such research involves sending biological material, including that containing sensitive information, such as genetic data or certain genetic polymorphisms, to third parties who can use this information for completely different purposes. We can't be sure what happened how the ethics of such experiments was considered acceptable and the clinical trials approved. We didn't see any documents and were unable to trace the patients involved, with what really happened in Mariupol shrouded in secrecy. But Ukraine has a history when it comes to children and drug trials. In 2013, scandal broke out in Ukrainian RADA when concerns were raised over orphaned children being allegedly used as human guinea pigs, tested on without consent with the regional hospital in Poltava not having the necessary approval to carry out clinical trials. Procedures for clinical trials of medications submitted for registration have been carried out in Ukraine with numerous violations. A glaring fact is the conduct of tests involving orphans, including after the expiration of their insurance contract or without the permission of one of the parents, and even worse, with violations of the information consent of minor patients. But instead of taking action, the Ministry of Health went on the offensive, with the lawmakers who raised the issue threatened with having charges brought against them. As officials denied that children had been tested on in Poltava, they said such trials were against the law, opening serious questions about what happened in Mariupol. The prosecutor's office, the Regional Health Administration of Poltava Regional State Administration and the Ministry of Health carried out an investigation and concluded that no clinical trials or testing of any drug or vaccine in the Poltava region or in the whole of Ukraine were performed. Firstly, it is forbidden by law. Drug companies often seek to offshore clinical trials on humans to developing and emerging countries where they can find a large pool of vulnerable people along with a lax regulatory framework. Post-Soviet countries remain fertile ground and given the level of corruption in Ukraine, it became a prime target. The first clinical trials took place there in 1996. In 1998, just 20 international trials took place in Ukraine. Within 10 years, this figure reached 466, with an upward trend continuing. 888 clinical trials were taking place in Ukraine in 2022. The number of sites approved to conduct clinical trials followed a similar trend, rising from 175 in 2001 to more than 1,300 in 2009. One of the drug companies listed in the documents found in the Mariupol basement, Sanofi, was so keen to continue its trials that they evacuated people to western Ukraine. Sanofi's teams on the ground have made really heroic efforts to move patients from the study out of Ukrainian territories affected by the conflict and to the relatively safer west of the country or into clinical sites in neighboring countries. Of course, perfectly legal and above board, even if morally suspect. One name crops up in the documents over and over again. Dr. Andrei Gnilorybov. He is now understood to be in Kiev, an expert rheumatologist his career built off the back of the tests that took place in Mariupol. Gliloribov is well paid and lives a comfortable life, unlike many of his former patients. My mother got sick. They gave her drugs. I asked her what medications she was taking, but she didn't give me a clear answer. She said that the drugs were simply given from a white box. Her condition worsened over the course of a month, and then she died. They did not take any responsibility, did not find anyone, and did not provide any help. Big pharmaceutical companies ensure their contracts contain clauses that exclude such payouts as they make bumper profits for their shareholders. These boxes of documents contain the secrets of the mass trials and experiments that took place here in the Donetsk Republic. Full investigations will take time and may reveal just how the people here were used as human guinea pigs. And that's all in today's international news from non-NATO media. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. And that does it for tonight on your Rebel Alliance News. Thanks so much for tuning in here in beautiful Los Angeles. We're so happy to be here with you. And once again, if you want to stream us, we're also at rebelalliancenews.com. Go check it out. It takes an army of millions 
and like three people to bring this all-volunteer-run news show to you. So I want to give a big thanks to those people, like Paulina with her non-natal news, of course, Deary for her production and guidance, and as always, Wendell Handy for manning the board. We will be back here again tomorrow night at 6 p.m. We're here Monday through Friday, so come check us out tomorrow. We'll see you then. Good night. Hey, this is Tom Hartman. Free Speech Radio can't survive without your generous support. Become a KPFK sustaining member now by pledging a dollar a day at kpfk.org. Support comes from Art Don't Sleep and Jazz is Dead, presenting Baseku Guyate and Ngoni Ba on Thursday, February 22nd at the Lodge Room in Highland Park. Traveling all the way from his home in Mali, Baseku is one of the true masters of the Ngoni, an ancient traditional lute found throughout West Africa. With his band Ngoni Ba, Baseku pushes the boundaries of his ancient musical heritage, bringing his music to audiences around the world. More information and tickets, visit jazzisdead.com or kpfk.org. Jamaku. Kpfk.org. Jamaku.